you know, it, there's a lot that we find frightening and bewildering about what it is to be alive. We have told ourselves a story to buffer ourselves from those fears, which is the story that we are unique and special and only we matter. That's killing the earth. That's taking our abundance of wild mammals down to 4%. That's transforming our earth system so that we have widespread pollution, widespread over-exploitation and stress in our, in our ecosystems and environments. That's not been a paradigm that's helped us in, in the long run. And in fact, it's, it's now potentially killing. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Ecosystem Member Podcast. You may have noticed that the runtime for this episode is a little longer than normal, so we'll keep the intro quick. And it's really because I simply couldn't cut a minute of the amazing chat with today's guest, Melanie Challenger. I found Melanie through her book, How to Be Animal, and then read her other incredible book, On Extinction. In addition to being an amazing writer, Melanie recently edited a new book called Animal Dignity and is the vice president of the RSPCA UK. So without further delay, please enjoy this epic episode with writer Melanie Challenger. Today on the Ecosystem Member Podcast, we have Melanie Challenger, author of the books On Extinction, How We Came Estranged from Nature, and How to Be Animal, What It Means to Be Human, as well as the editor of the recently released collection Animal Dignity, Philosophical Reflections on Non-Human Existence, which is the first book to introduce the concept of animal dignity. Thanks for taking the time to chat today, Melanie. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I want to start with the opening line from your book, How to Be Animal. You write, the world is now dominated by an animal that doesn't think it's an animal. In this frame, how do you describe your individual relationship with nature as someone that's exploring these concepts, but then also zooming out a little bit about how that fits within the larger sort of general human relationship with nature? My, my work is to look at history of ideas of how we relate to the living world. And I'm also an amateur naturalist, right? So I spend a lot of time in the living world as well. And it was really through those two different perspectives that I became intrigued by the kinds of value framings that determine how we relate to nature, to other beings. And in particular, in How to Be Animal, I began to focus on the idea of human exceptionalism. And this comes in lots of different forms. And so that's what I'm really talking about when I say the world is dominated by an animal that doesn't think it's an animal. What I mean by that is that human exceptionalism, which we can take to mean the idea that humans are exceptional in nature, but they're not just exceptional, which I would agree with. They're not just exceptional, but they're superior, they're better, and therefore that justifies a lot of what we then do in the world, particularly with regard to exploiting nature, exploiting other living beings. In order to really think about that idea, how it manifests through history, different kinds of cultures, different eras, I came to the conclusion that human beings really struggle, partly as a consequence of what is exceptional about us, our particular kind of subjective consciousness. We really struggle with what it is to be animals ourselves. We struggle with what we fear about being animal, and we struggle with our mentality. We struggle with all kinds of um, things that follow normally from being an animal and from living a, a, 
life that is entangled with the rest of nature. And we've built these belief systems and these justifications to both control, harness, exploit, and in some cases, destroy parts of the living world. And it all comes under the aegis of this kind of human exceptionalism. So that was what I was really talking about. And, and the book explores how that plays out both through history and, and in our lives. There's another line in the book about the human mind being an amazing natural phenomenon. Yet belief has supported this idea of human exceptionalism and that we're more than biological. And this has led to practices like eating octopus, which has a brain we don't even really understand. How do you work with these two ideas of belief and human exceptionalism and also biology and being biological? Well, absolutely. So you've pulled out one aspect of uh, that that we can see on under the kind of banner of, of human exceptionalism, which is the idea that we have an exceptional mind. And actually that belief that we have an exceptional mind and therefore a superior mind or a unique kind of mind, a unique kind of experience within nature, we, we find all the way through history, but it really takes a little bit of a turn in the Enlightenment when there was a sort of tension between older spiritual ideas about what it is to be human and more scientific um, empirical ideas about what it is to be human. And they, in fact, belief systems and spirituality were kind of smuggled into that scientific perspective on the human mind around that time and have stayed with us ever since. So what we're really talking about here is something that philosophers would call substance dualism. So this is the idea that, that we're made of two substances, a material substance, so our animal bit that we share with all other animals, flesh and our blood and so forth. And then a spiritual or a different special essence that is potentially what would survive us afterwards. So, you know, the soul body dualism is a substance dualism, for example, but also post-enlightenment, we have this mind-body dualism. So this idea that we have a very unique kind of mind, will, reason, all of these sorts of ideas that are somehow unique to humans, that's something special about humans that no other animal has or that no no other animal's cognition or perception or um, sentience matters or, or can come up to the mark of the human kind of mind and experience. And as, as, as you'll see with the prior answer as well, therefore, there's always a therefore here. Therefore, it means that human beings are justified in having a completely unique moral status. So either in some people's belief systems, only human beings have a moral status. And that usually follows from claims about the kind of mind that we have. Or we say that um, some other animals might be vaguely morally considerable if they have minds a little bit like ours, say, for instance, our closest relative, the chimpanzee. Um, but they don't matter quite as much because they don't measure up. They can't do the kinds of things. They don't write poetry. They don't write symphonies. We'll hear all of these sorts of claims that are made about human beings. That's often when you really get into the weeds, quite difficult to really justify in an either or way like that with a hard border. There are no hard borders in biology. Biology sort of, you know, conserves things that are good for lots of other kinds of animals. And we find that we'll share all kinds of things, especially with mammals. But broadly, as you said, you mentioned the 
cephalopods, um, octopuses who have a decentralized intelligence. So they've got um, a kind of like a brain in their arms as well as, as in their heads. So they have a decentralized kind of mental processing, which is we can't even begin to grasp and is particular to their needs. It's very difficult to make very clear value judgments within nature. It won't allow it. You usually need a spiritual belief of some kind to do that. And yet the reality is, is that all of our legal systems, all of our moral systems around the world are based around that kind of hard you know, border between humans and the rest of nature. Another idea I'd like to explore is one I feel a lot of tension around. Many people will say humans are exceptional because of morals, which comes to us from that space beyond the biological. This leads many to think humans are not just animals, but actually better than animals, uh, despite you know what they learned in grade school biology. You also often have these same people saying that we can't anthropomorphize human traits and behaviors to animals, which to me seems like we're using human exceptionalism based on morals to deny any chance of something like morals in other animals. Um, at best, this seems confusing, uh, if not simply creating sort of facts uh, to support our belief in human exceptionalism. Yeah, no, it's, there are several things to say. The first is that it is very moderate. We act with confidence, we think without that same level of confidence. So our laws might very clearly state that no other animal has personhood or no other animal has intrinsic moral status in the way that we do and yet when you really get into the thinking as you've pointed out it all gets a little bit muddy um anthropomorphism is a crucial way if we turn it on ourselves so anthropomorphizing so um reshaping or rethink you know assuming human-like or seeing human-like characteristics in another the first thing to grasp about anthropomorphism, which, as is so often the case, we are using a term for something that is actually rather more complex than a kind of single term can quite capture. But anthropomorphism simply is part of our social cognition. It's part of our kind of repertoire as, as, as a social being. Human beings are highly social primates. So we are unusually um, social and we have multiple connections across um, different family members and non-family members between different groups and so forth now that's all not a pro-social um cognition it's a socially flexible cognition so we're sometimes lovely to one another we're sometimes absolutely awful to one another and a lot of this turns on on ideas and psychology and so forth when we anthropomorphize we we do that with one another first so we mind read one another, we perceive agency in one another, for instance, we look for signals of feeling and we mirror with those or not if it doesn't suit us. But we are always inferring mind in one another and inferring feeling and motivation in one another, which is a kind of anthropomorphizing with one another as a crucial part of how we anticipate and gather insights into one another and, and can cooperate with one another or manipulate one another, of course. So we wouldn't want to be rid of anthropomorphizing because it's fundamental to our own social interactions. We also employ a similar kind of strategy with other living beings. So 
hunter-gatherers, for instance, hunters are very skilled at anticipating the agency, the purposiveness, the intelligence and intentions of the animals that they're hunting, or indeed the competitors. So, for instance, lions, you might be competing with uh, human beings over the same kind of prey. It is crucial and often life-saving to be able to anticipate what those other non-human agents in the environment might be doing, and that requires a form of anthropomorphizing. But what's happened with us now, and particularly with the advent of behaviorism and, and comparative cognition science in the 20th century, is that we became very wary of gathering any data within science that about the intelligence or capabilities or sentience of other living beings that was imposing or assuming human things that weren't really there. And there's, I mean, there's a huge amount to unpack there because that, a lot of that's very biased. It purports to be about getting the best data, but there are value assumptions and hidden kind of vulnerabilities at play in that kind of a part of our history of science. But um, we're kind of coming out of the other side of that now. And, and actually, it's sort of swung back the other way. And as much as there's less of a ridiculously high threshold in our assumption of signals of intelligence or communication and so forth in other living beings than there was maybe 20 or 30 years ago within that kind of culture of science. But, but that's where this sort of anthropomorphism is sentimentality or is even is just mistaken assumptions of of intelligence or feeling and other living beings. I think we've moved beyond that now, but that that was kind of where it came from. And another mistake that I think you do a really good job of sort of correcting or adjusting people's perception on is the idea of evolution having a direction. Can you sum up what the what the idea of evolution is and how it doesn't exactly have the sort of neat one after another direction that a lot of people think that it does? Well, let's think about human beings first. So throughout a lot of human history, we have, well, okay, going back far enough, people were assumed to have come into the world fully formed. So, and indeed, there are pe certain people of, of literal faith who still believe that human beings, can, you know, didn't evolve. They, they were made as they are, designed and made as they are. That started to change really in the late 1700s, as more and more fossil evidence of extinction of prior forms started to, Cuvier is, is someone who's particularly associated with this, but this idea. So, and also as we started to find signs of earlier human forms who didn't appear to be Homo sapiens. So at the same time that we were starting to get our sort of heads around taxonomy or lineages and and we, we're ahead, we're not at Darwin yet, you know, but the, uh, this is all of the kind of background to moving towards uh, Darwin and Alfred Wallace's ideas about natural selection. So that's the way in which evolution takes place. It's the, it's the mechanism. We haven't got to this stage, but prior to that, we've started to get the recognition that there were earlier stages of the Earth. This is not a young Earth. This is an older, geologically speaking. There were prior forms that appear to now be extinct and including earlier forms of humans. But even then, and even after we get origin of the species and we get the idea of entangled life and, and that we, we all come from common ancestors and this is how you get you know, different kinds of forms through nature, through evolutionary processes, which we'll go into in a moment. Even before that, you've got this idea that human beings must have 
um, evolve in a successional line. So in other words, there was no branching here. It just each earlier form of human beings evolved into the next form in a nice linear sort of upward march. Of course, in the background of this is an even earlier idea of the Scala Natura, so the idea of a chain of being it's with God at the top, angels underneath, and then human beings. We've got all of this sort of baggage that we inher- inherit in our ideas about the world, and it, it was always progressive. We're always ascending with human beings at the top of the biological pyramid. We now know, and, and only in the last kind of decade or so, we have substantial evidence that human beings were humans among other humans. But until really quite recently in our history, that we human beings were a branch. We had other humans who lived alongside us. And we are therefore alone. And one must ask questions about how that came to be, that all of these different kinds of intelligent living beings, Neanderthals being the most well-known one, but Homo erectus also, and so forth. Why it's only homo sapiens who made it through despite considerable intelligence and capability and culture. Nonetheless, even in human beings, we have a tendency to want to see everything in this kind of um, progressive way, this progress narrative within evolution. You know, when Darwin published his ideas, it was a real assault on the minds of a whole generation. And I think our generation can forget how cataclysmic it was for many of the people who read and understood those ideas people were found them depressing they found them incredibly frightening it it knocked their sense of meaning and value to human life and you can see a scramble in the aftermath to try and regain our position within nature when faced with the fact that we had evolved you know through time from much earlier you know small mammals and you know, when the dinosaurs were on the earth, that is a frightening idea and it knocks your sense of superiority, that buffering you, that idea that we're somehow special. That can be a very frightening idea to adopt. And I think even in the 21st century, we haven't fully accepted. Many people don't really understand evolutionary process that well. They accept it, but don't necessarily understand that there are multiple different mechanisms within evolution. Evolution is a population level event, for instance. So it, it's it's about um, the the genotype and the phenotype. So the kind of the way a biological form appears is determined by how many of those kinds survive at, at a population level. At the individual level, there's huge amounts of variation and it's that variation in nature that leads to change in a long time scale. Then within that, even further, there's all kinds of you know details on the molecular level that are that have never gone into common knowledge. Really. So many people don't really understand evolution that well to, to start with, and we still tend to talk about evolution in a in a kind of purpose-like way, as though there's some goal in age in in evolution, as though you know we have hands because they were designed in some kind of way and that's not really what happens it's random mutations it's drift within a population and then it's it's the numbers of survivors there are agentive kind of things happening that the individual organisms do sex selection would be an example of that but but generally these things happen quite randomly and and yet we still try to think about evolution as some sort of 
pro progress as some sort of agency because we find it very difficult to let go of those sorts of ideas and that accept that that's not what's really happening. It's much more dynamic. It's much more of a process. And it's not about good or bad in a design sense. It's just about who makes it through to the next generation and what's happening in the environment and how a population of animals are responding or organisms more widely are responding to one another and to their environment that result in, in a change in the evolutionary space and forms. That, that's what's happening. It's not nobody's designing better or worse here. And things can go change in one direction you can you know develop limbs and then you can lose those limbs within a population of animals so it can go you know through lots of different transformations that are not about oh getting limbs equals better that's superior that's not how it works in evolution i think a lot of that follows from the fact that people don't really understand it very well and inherit a lot of cultural baggage and there was one piece you mentioned there about this idea of, of humans feeling special and uh, where I'd like to end the conversation on is is what I think is one of the most beautiful lines from your book, um, How to Be Animal. And it's, we in the earth and all of its other life forms are made of the shrapnel of a dead star. When I read that, I thought that's pretty special. It's more of a macro special of we're not necessarily exceptional, but we still are special. And it's special that like all these things exist in the same place at the same time. So do you think we'll ever be able to sort of embrace this alternative sort of version of special that's founded on this foundational connectedness of our mass scale and, and you know, coming from this shrapnel of a dead star. Do you think we'll ever be able to embrace that as humans? I think the only way we can do that is it's always going to be enormously difficult for human beings, unless they're incredibly enlightened, to sit comfortably alongside the things that they fear. And that's a lot of what I look at in How to Be Animal. But there are things that are troubling about being alive. We're mortal. In geological terms, we have relatively short lifespans. We love deep and hard, and it's immensely difficult to face the fact that we will lose those that we love and in, and ourselves. Um, we get diseases. We've just lived through a pandemic. Pandemics are very typical of social living organisms. There's a pandemic happening with birds at the moment. These kinds of things happen are routine within nature, hence why we have immune systems, of course. You know, it, there's a lot that we find frightening and bewildering about what it is to be alive. We have told ourselves a story to buffer ourselves from those fears, which is the story that we are unique and special and only we matter. That's killing the earth. That's taking our abundance of wild mammals down to 4%. That's transforming our earth system so that we have widespread pollution, widespread over-exploitation and stress in our in our ecosystems and environments. That's not been a paradigm that's helped us in, in the long run. And in fact, it's, it's now potentially killing. If we switch into a different kind of idea to buffer us, and, and I would argue that one which is more generous to the rest of li the living world and accepts that, in fact, there is no hard border between us and the rest of the biotic community, that we're all incredible, that that could be an idea that would still buffer us, that kind of entanglement and connectedness. Although as long as you don't ever lose sight of, of the individual difference and variation, I think it's very important not to think about species as aggregates, you know, in that kind of way. 
but all species are made up of individuals in one way or another, even if the individual takes a kind of communal form in, in nature. Nonetheless, I think we have to always meet living beings on their own terms rather than impose our own idea. They're not there to service our kind of um, egos in psychology. That said, I think if we embrace a more respectful relationship of life itself, including the life that we don't like, including the life that we find frightening, including the strangest, the smallest, the paramecium, the, the mosquito, and so forth. If we could try and go into that kind of affiliative state, I think that could potentially both buffer us, but also manifest in the world in actions that are less disastrous for, for the Earth systems themselves. And for me, you know, you mentioned the shrapnel. What, what is extraordinary about life is that we are made of the same matter or, you know, we are chemistry and physics. So we are chemistry and physics that have somehow been harnessed in, with a kind of directionality. Not that we are, um, and that is true of absolutely every life form. So that's true of the smallest, most invisible single cellular organism through to complex multicellular organisms like human beings, gorillas, elephants, and so on. We have harnessed the same sorts of properties, molecular properties in physics and chemistry that's out there in the stars of the world. And yet somehow we've opened our eyes and can, and can look out and can feel and can determine. That is just absolutely extraordinary. And for me, we, we need to reawaken our wonder at the living world um, and what it is to, to be alive. And that, that for me, is, is a, new, a new paradigm. That's fantastic. I, I love the idea of reawakening our wonder to the living world as a, as a call to action. And hopefully anyone who, who happens upon this podcast um, takes in it and embraces that. So thank you so much, Melanie, for taking time to chat today. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure.